thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. Happy New Year. Nearly. This is The Naked Scientist, the show that takes you to the cutting edge of science, technology and medicine. With me, Katie Haler. Me, Adam Murphy. And me, Phil Sansom. In this week's special episode, we're taking a trip down memory lane, month by month, reflecting on some of our favourite moments from a whole year's worth of sensational science sought out by the Naked Scientist's office in 2019. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First up, and fitting for some of us at this time of year, we're talking booze. Adam, what's your favourite drink? I mean, I'm probably more fond of a bit of whiskey than I should be. No, don't be too hard on yourself. But what's your favourite glass to drink it from? Any glass that is funny shaped, the better. I do have an elephant glass <laughs> at home that I'm very fond of. Well, the elephant glass aside, it turns out that the glass you drink alcohol from might just influence how much you drink. Back in January, Katie spoke with neuroscientist Marcus Manafo from the University of Bristol, who's been looking into this with the eventual aim of reverse engineering the relationship to encourage healthier living. Well, if you go into a bar now, you'll see that certainly if you order a pint of lager, there'll be an array of different glasses that that drink will be served in, depending on exactly what drink you order. They will often, certainly if they're being used to serve lager, will have a nucleation stamp on the inside, which is texture on the inside of the glass that promotes bubble formation, that keeps it fizzy, that keeps the head on your lager and so on. There's branding typically on the glass, so depending on which brand of beer you're drinking, you'll be served that beer in that specific glass. And all of those things have been introduced for a reason or might have been introduced for a reason so understanding what impact they have on how fast you drink or whether or not you like the taste of the drink is important if we want to then be able to decide which of those features we might want to uh, modify to promote healthier behavior and is there evidence to suggest that those kinds of aspects of a glass really do make a difference on someone's drinking behavior Well, there is some evidence. It's still quite early days, but we ran one laboratory study where we brought people in and we randomised them to drink from either a curved glass or a straight glass. One of the things that we did was look at how people judge the halfway point on different shaped glasses using psychophysical techniques. If you've ever had a hearing test, you have taken part in that kind of study where you have a staircase procedure. In the case of a hearing test where you have sounds that are getting louder and then getting quieter, and that going up and going down allows you to detect very precisely the point at which people can and can't hear something. And you can use a similar kind of approach when you ask people to judge uh, where the halfway point is in a glass, for example, by presenting images that have more or less liquid in them. And we found some evidence that when they were drinking lager, they tended to drink faster from the curved glass than they did from the straight glass. And the reason that we think that's happening is because when you look at a glass and try and judge how much is left in it, that's easy to do in a straight glass, but much harder to do in a curved glass because... The side of the glass 
is what your eye follows, but actually the volume changes at a different rate to what you might expect from just following the shape on the side of the glass. So in other words, when you think you've got to halfway in your drink, you've actually drunk more like two-thirds of it. Ah, okay. So if you're saying, oh, no, I'm going to steady myself, I'll have half a pint in half an hour, actually, it's much more difficult than that. Yeah, because by the time you get to where you think is halfway, actually another couple of drinks and and you finish the thing. So that might have an influence on how fast you drink. And we did find some evidence that the greater the extent to which people misjudged how much was left in the glass at the halfway point, the faster they drank. So if that's the case, then it suggests ways in which we could reverse engineer that knowledge and shape behaviour in a healthier way. We could either put markings on the side of the glass so that people had a clearer cue as to how much of their drink was left, or we could encourage people to drink from straight glasses because it's easier to make that judgment in a straight glass. Marcus Manafo there from the University of Bristol. Katie, what's your favourite tipple? I just love bubbles. Anything with bubbles in it. I don't think I could tell the difference between champagne and Prosecco. But I do quite like it when it's in a fancy glass. Fancy choice, fancy glass. I like it. Now, in the spirit of all of those failed New Year's resolutions, up next after booze on the list of festive science topics is, you've guessed it, exercise. Back in February, Georgia Mills bravely donned her trainers and hit the chilly streets of Cambridge to explore the science of running. Now, assuming you don't do yourself an injury and you're okay to run, the physical benefits of jogging are pretty obvious. But what about the mental ones? Georgia put this to Henriette von Prague from Florida University. There's benefits for our ability to think, manage time, pay attention, plan, to remember events, places, people and how they are linked together. We see actual changes in brain structure with exercise. So there's an increase in what we call the gray matter, the part of the brain that contains the neurons, and also white matter, which consists of the axonal pathways that connect cells to each other. We see also an increase in particular in the size of the brain area that's very important for learning and memory, called the hippocampus, the same brain area that is often affected in neurodegenerative conditions such as Alzheimer's disease. With exercise, there is an increase in the volume of the hippocampus, and we also see upregulation of blood flow in that area and in other areas of the brain. With exercise, there's a reduction in anxiety, there's improvement in sleep quality, um, reduction in stress hormone levels. So these are things we know um, in humans. Why do we think you get these benefits in the brain? With exercise, there are neurochemical changes in the brain. So there are changes in neurotransmitters, and some of these are called monoamines, dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine. And that family of neurotransmitters is strongly implicated. Exercise upregulates the level of monoamines. It will also upregulate a protein called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF. This is a very important growth factor in the brain, which is important for uh, survival, growth of neurons, it influences their complexity, it influences their ability of neurons to communicate with each other. So it's been shown that if levels of BDNF are low, there can be increased anxiety and there can also be learning and memory problems. But other things we can see is in terms of uh, measures of anxiety is, for example, stress hormones levels such as cortisol in the bloodstream. 
And those also go down with exercise over time and may lead to a reduction in anxiety and depression. But Henriette and her team had an idea. Perhaps not all of these changes were originating inside the brain. Not just the brain is running, your whole body is running. You are recruiting, you know, your heart, bloodstream, and of course, skeletal muscle. So one of the things that we are very interested in is what is released out of skeletal muscle that might influence brain function. Henriette isolated muscle cells and treated them with compounds to activate energy pathways, basically engineering exercise in a dish. They took the metabolic soup that came out of the cells, found the compound of interest inside, and then added it to brain cells to see what the effect was. You can see an increase in endurance if you give these kind of compounds, and you can also see an improvement in memory function, suggesting that this kind of pathway of activation may be one of the sources of the effects of exercise on the brain, or at least setting a cascade of events in motion that links to all this plethora of effects that I just described. If we know that factor, could we bottle up exercise and put it in a pill for maybe those of us who aren't able to go? Oh, no, 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 no. That would be extremely dangerous because, (laughs) (laughs) no, no, good try. But unfortunately, um, those kind of factors are very tied to our physiology. And if you have, you know, too much, it could be detrimental. Too little is, is also not good. That said, it's not completely out of the realm of possible that, If we learn more about these factors and know how to, let's say, chop off a little bit of the sequences that are potentially involved in in detrimental effects, that we could harness them. But then I would probably think only, let's say, in cases where, um, you know, somebody's incapacitated, cannot walk well and help them kind of transition back to to an active uh, lifestyle. But it would definitely not replace the complete package of the benefits of exercise. So no gifting bottled up exercise this Christmas. Henriette van Prague from Florida University. Now, Adam and Phil, is running up there on your New Year's resolution list for 2020? Phil, I think you started running anyway, haven't you? Unfortunately, it has to be because I signed up for a half marathon in March (laughs) and I'm really scared. How's it going? Not super well. Check back in a month. Now, from running to another activity guaranteed to get you in a sweat, making swords. Yeah, we're talking swashbuckling science. Although we might not use them much now, swords have been invaluable tools for thousands of years. And in March, Jack Tavener took a trip back in time to learn about the material science of sword making from blacksmith Magnus Sigurdsson at his very own forge. Iron is incredibly difficult to harden. Uh, if you turn it into steel, which is just actually iron and carbon, and yet you can vary the amount of carbon and the different types of heat process, it can be used for most things, from making cooking pots to decent blades to suits of armour. The other thing, of course, is iron ore is a lot more common than copper and tin, so it's easier, it's more available, it's more out there. A lot of positives to using steel then, but it's reliant on the carbon content within the iron to make it hard. To understand how carbon does this, imagine a cup of tea and adding a sugar cube, creating a solution where the sugar particles are evenly dissolved throughout. The carbon in the steel is just like the sugar in the tea. The carbon fits in the gaps of the iron's crystal structure, preventing the crystals from moving and increasing the hardness of the whole material. It's difficult in that time because of the smelting process to get good quality steel that's high carbon content all the way through 
So you can control it to a limited extent on a charcoal-powered forge by just heating it through and stacking it. You get to a temperature before the carbon is burnt out that it'll absorb carbon. If it's in basically a stack with almost no oxygen mm -hmm. at the right temperature, it will absorb the carbon before it burns it out. So that's so the point. You bury it in all this charcoal. Yep, heat all, it up nice and slowly. All the carbon transfers, and then that's what gives you that hardness that yep. you're looking for. Yeah, I get. mean, this is the way they would have done it, you know, through the medieval period. The forge was already lit, so we stoked up the heat using bellows that filled an entire room next door to blow air through the fire and crank up the flames until they glowed a bright bluey-purple colour. Magnus buried our bar of steel into a ferocious charcoal fire at 1,300 degrees Celsius. Temperatures this high caused the steel to glow bright orange and become soft, so that it could be worked into the shape of our blade. He pulled it out of the fire and started beating it with a hammer over his anvil. That's right, that large chunk of metal often dropped from the sky in the cartoons. And this continuous bashing has a lot of benefits. It's moving it into a different shape. It's also refining the structure of the steel as you work it. So it's making the structure finer, so you're actually improving the quality of the steel. What you're doing here is making the crystal smaller and finer, so you've got a smaller and finer grain structure. You're also working by the feel of the metal and the sound. If I hit where it's colder, it rings more. If I hit where it's hotter, duller sound. So you can actually feel by how it's responding, how it's working. Everybody thinks it's actually the hammer that's doing a lot of the work, but you're actually using the anvil to keep the surface smooth and get rid of the hammer marks. As you can see now, it's really lost colour very, very quickly. Yeah. If the steel's got a fair amount of carbon in, you don't want to work it cold, it will crack the steel. And so, it was back into the flames of the forge, then reheat the steel, bash it some more, and essentially repeat the process until you've got a sharp edge. So you prefer to refine most of it on the forge, and in the forge, on the anvil, and not grind it, because again, I'm not wasting steel, which they wouldn't have done years and years ago because steel was way too expensive to just grind most of it off. And I feel we get a better quality product. You know, as I said, you're refining the structure of the steel all the way through. How do they know how to make all these different materials? Trial, error, inspired guesswork at the time. They weren't sort of sticking all this under an electron microscope and looking at the structure and things like that. And what they found worked, they stuck with. It was then time to dunk our blade into some water, otherwise known as quenching. What this has done is suddenly cause all the vibrating particles to actually lock solid. You're trying to get hard and tough. You get hard, it snaps. Tough is slightly softer. So you actually run through several heat cycles to actually get the effect you want. And it's called tempering, where you heat it up, quench it, and let heat back into the blade and different heats and tempering processes give you different qualities in different types of steel. Okay, so you're trying to make, I guess, a, a hard edge on the blade, but not so that it snaps it like a, a ruler or something. Yeah. Very easy, if you bend it too much, it breaks. You wouldn't it, want that on the battlefield. It's, no, it's, it's a fine line. You've got to work out what you need for what we'd call a working edge. Some real cutting-edge stuff there. Sorry. But how cool was it actually doing the interview at the Forge? I remember you being so excited to do this one. Yeah, it was pretty great. It's my go-to story now whenever I meet new people. I met a sword-making blacksmith. Is it unbearably hot in there, like I'm picturing from movies? I mean, when you're close to the Forge itself, yeah, that's uncomfortable. But otherwise, it's actually nice and cool. And the Forge is hot enough to make bacon sandwiches, which Magnus did for us. <laughs> Magnus sounds amazing. <laughs> 
Hello, sorry to butt in, Katie here from the Naked Scientists. Did you know we make other naked shows too? The fraction of all humanity who has actually gotten a chance to see their own brain is very tiny and you are welcomed to that club. So if you enjoy musing over the mind, reflecting on thought or frankly feel bamboozled by the brain, check out Naked Neuroscience. Well, my face hurts now, so yeah, let's go, it's spicy. <laughs> Don't go down into the creepy cellar yeah. and turn the light on. <laughs> exactly. Access the full archive via nakedscientist.com slash neuroscience or subscribe to Naked Neuroscience wherever you get your podcasts. This week, we're casting our ears back over the best bits of Naked Science this year. Sometimes here at the Naked Scientist's office, we get some adorable opportunities. And animal lover Adam could not pass up the opportunity to meet one particular cute creature back in April. It's probably the prickliest interview he's ever done. Sadly, hedgehog numbers are in decline in the UK. And one place helping them out is the Shepworth Wildlife Conservation Charity, Hedgehog Hospital. Adam met welfare officer Alex Masterman alongside her patient, Rosemary. So this is Rosemary. So Rosemary was out during the day several times, so she was brought in. They thought she might be quite old. She had fleas and she was quite lethargic. And then when we checked her, yeah, so she had um, capillaria and chronosoma, so lungworm and roundworm, things like that. She was about 500 grams when she come in, and she's now, I mean, much bigger than that. She's now in the 1,200 grams range, so she's doing really well. I mean, she's actually on our clean shelf, which means she's now completely parasite-free, and we're actually looking for a home for her to be released into now. And when I was finished fawning over the hedgehog, the first one I'd ever seen in the flesh, I'm ashamed to say, I wanted to know how you treat something whose first instinct is to curl into a ball of spikes. Some hedgehogs are more prone to curling up than others especially our old ones if you pick them up sometimes they won't curl rosemary's doing quite a good job of when you pick her up you see she will one of the ways that we can like see underneath them so for our like general first aid when they come in we want to make sure there's no cuts or injuries underneath is if you sort of wheelbarrow them like that their instinct is to sort of put their feet down and that will make them uncurl um it's when... <laughs> so tip them nearly onto their heads and... yeah some of them especially the new young ones when they come in you'll put them down and they'll curl into a ball and they won't uncurl and then to get them to do that you can just tickle their back here and if you sort of lightly brush the spines they will slowly uncurl no idea why in terms of the medication we give here it all goes under the skin none into the veins or the muscle and for that we actually like them to be curled up into a ball what we do is we put them on their back and um, there's a ring of muscle sort of around the front and that's how they uh, curl up and we just take some of the spines around the edge and gently pull out and what that does is exposes some of the skin tents it so we can then get the needle and sort of put it in parallel to the body and just get it under the skin what kinds of things are their pokey patients treated for here i'd say a majority is parasite burdens things like lungworm and bierin ringworm as well which causes them to lose a lot of their spines and fur and obviously that's no good because they lose their main defense mechanism injuries a common one is strimmer victims early in the season we have one at the moment that luckily just avoided a strimmer and has just had some of her spines taken off all sorts we get ones coming in with missing limbs ones that are blind i'd say the majority is definitely parasite burdens but what is the state of hedgehog kind why is a hospital like this necessary 
So hedgehogs in the UK are actually on the same decline as tigers. They are really struggling and experts reckon that in the next like 10, 15 years we could no longer have hedgehogs in the UK. And that's largely because of population loss and fragmentation. A lot of people close off their gardens and obviously there's new roads being built and things like that. And it just means that hedgehogs can't move freely and breed. People think they're vermin and pests and they're really not. They're actually very useful for us in our gardens because they obviously keep down like insects and things like that. What can we do to help them if we wanted to make it easier for hedgehogs? What's the best thing to do? So one of the easiest things you can do is just create hedgehog highways in your garden. So making uh, holes in your fence just to allow hedgehogs to pass through. And that just makes it a lot easier for them to move about. Also putting out food and water. So hedgehogs will eat cat and dog food wet and dry as long as it's not gravy or fish based. Because that can give them an upset stomach. Alex Masterman there. Adam How do the hedgehogs actually get released once they've had their respite? So when the hedgehogs are good enough that they can get released and they'll survive and thrive out in the wild, they find a foster hedgehog family. This family take care of the hedgehog, release it into their garden and keep an eye on it while it snuffles around their garden. And then once it's fully better and it's safe in that garden, it's released into the wider hedgehog world. Yeah, that's about the cutest answer I could have expected. (laughs) From hedgehogs to hounds and hare now. And as the May days got lighter and brighter, we wanted to find out which contained more bacteria – dog fur or a human beard? Hmm. The subject was going up the agenda because a shortage of veterinary scanners means machines for humans are increasingly being used to image our pet dogs, leading some people to wonder about infection risks. But which actually has more bugs lurking inside? Dog fur or a human beard? To sniff out an answer, we let Ben McAllister and Ruby Osborne off the leash to investigate. In the interests of confidentiality, the names of some of the furry subjects in this report have been bleeped to protect their identities. Riff. Recently, there's been a lot of hullabaloo about the relative cleanliness of dogs and humans, with a study from the journal European Radiology finding that, on average, men's beard hair contains higher populations of bacteria than dog fur. That's interesting and a bit gross. Well, what did they find? They swabbed dog fur in 30 dogs and people fur in 18 adult men and compared the bacteria found in each. Dr Goodsight commented that the study showed that humans and animals are very similar and the paper explains that they actually found slightly higher populations of bacteria on average on the men's faces. An astute listener will note at this point that I know how to grow facial hair. And I know how to test things for bacteria. So, we went to the Queen's Veterinary School here at Cambridge University to see how I compared to a dog. We're here with... David Williams, I'm a veterinary surgeon here. Well, who else is with us, Ruby? I have my two test subjects. I have the Black Labrador. And also Ben, an Australian man. Woof. And we're going to find out who's got more bacteria. Uh, David, who do you think is going to have more bacteria in their hair? Do you think it's going to be here or do you think it's going to be me? Well, I would have thought it would be because doesn't uh, uh, wash herself on a daily basis. <laughs> and I hope that, that you might. That makes some sense, but I guess the proof is in the swabbing. So let's get down to it, shall we? I'm going to swab his neck. Come here, darling. There we go. Good girl. She's certainly wagging her tail. Aren't you a good girl? Okay, one sample down. And swab number two. I'm very nervous about this one. Okay, all done. As well as Ben's beard, I also swabbed his hairless cheek to see if it's really the beard that's a problem, or just humans' faces. Our doggy helper showed low amounts of bacteria, actually lower than any of the dogs in the original study. And then there's Ben. 
Oh dear. Ben's beard did in fact contain high levels of bacteria, five times more than the moderate amount on his cheek. Even though I just washed it that morning. So it seems our little experiment... Which is not very rigorous, by the way, with just one person and one dog. Stop trying to get out of it, Ben. Our little experiment supported the paper's findings that human beards contain more bacteria than dog fur. There's also the question of if bacteria being present in dog fur or human fur is really that big of a problem to begin with. Bacteria are everywhere. Keyboards. Phones. Doorknobs. Handrails. You get the idea. Whether or not bacteria are denser in a human beard than in a dog's fur, a beard is probably not the only bacteria-dense thing you'll come across in your day-to-day life. The study authors even said there's no reason to believe that women may harbour less bacteriological load than bearded men. So leave us beardies alone. We're no worse than the rest of you. Yep, beards are fine. You should probably still wash them regularly, though. I do! Well, then it's fine. Some would say cool, even. Some might, although our research found no evidence to support that assertion. Oh. (laughs) What do we think then? Are beards cool? I'm conscious of the fact that I'm sitting here with two bearded men. I have a beard exclusively because it's easier than shaving and I'm very, very lazy. (laughs) How often do you actually shave? I shave once every time I remember it or have an important event. Do you think that's enough to stop bacteria getting in there? I shave it down, but I I don't shave that often. Isn't the question whether or not the bacteria in your beard are actually a problem, though? But if there's five times as much as on Ben's cheek, for example, surely that can't be good, right? Are you saying we're going to have to do another study (laughs) exclusively on Phil's beard hair to find out whether it's gross or not? If you do it on me, you have to do it on Adam, too. I suddenly have an important event right before the experiment, (laughs) and I'm going to have to shave. (laughs) Now, speaking of other important events... Going to sleep. I absolutely love sleep, and I'm a night owl when it comes to it. What about you two? Night owls or early birds? Night owl. I'm pretty much a lark, I'd say, so definitely an early riser and definitely one to fall asleep on the earlier side of things, I'd say. If I'm not in bed by 11 o'clock, oh, I can't function. I feel like I never progressed from my teenager days. I could still take a lion every morning. I'm sure I'm not the only one who will sacrifice sleep for an impending deadline or for staying out at the pub a bit later than's good for me. Variation in sleep behaviour is partly due to genetic differences, including with our individual body clocks that tick away inside our cells, keeping internal time. Early risers, like Katie, have a faster ticking clock and tend to feel sleepy earlier, and late risers like me have a slower clock and tend to be awake later. But unfortunately, as Surrey University sleep expert Malcolm von Schantz told Katie back in June, late risers tend to get a rather raw deal within the temporal routines of modern working life. And he says it's time to change. I think we need a cultural change in that we need to recognise sleep as time well spent. We know from a number of studies that sleep deprivation is not good for your physiology. Sleeping out of synchrony with your body clock is also not good for you, such as in in jet lag or in shift work. But there's also a growing body of evidence that people who are night owls, naturally, have a bit of a raw deal in in terms of, of health outcomes. So there is a number of reports showing that, on average, Night owls have a higher risk of having a poorer mental health and poorer cardiovascular health and also higher risk of diabetes. 
in a report that we published last year, we used data from the UK Biobank where middle-aged people, when they signed up for this study, they uh, answered a question about, are you a morning type or an evening type on a scale with five steps? And what we found that people who describe themselves as definite evening types During these seven years, they had a 10% higher risk of dying than the definite morning types. And it's really important to note that we have no reason to assume that there is something intrinsically unhealthy of being an evening type. What we think is happening is that evening types are essentially forced to live in a world which is designed around the preferences of morning types. They have a difficult time because if you find it hard to fall asleep until quite late, but you still have to get up as early as everybody else, then you will start accumulating a sleep deprivation, which in the longer term is detrimental to your health. And equally, you can end up with something called social jet lag, which we often see in evening type. And that is in the weekend, they essentially try to make up for having to sort of live against their natural inclination by almost sort of traveling to a different time zone by sort of moving their activity patterns over the weekend and then back again on Monday. And that also is not good for the health. How can we better accommodate these sleep differences then? It is really important that we have an open dialogue about this in society and that we recognise that this natural biological variation is nothing to do with whether you are industrious or lazy or anything like that. It is just our biological background. Now, there are, of course, some professions where there is no flexibility, but in many professions, it is possible to have flexible working hours. And um, fortunately, people are now openly discussing flexible working hours for uh, reasons such as care responsibilities. It should absolutely be an acceptable reason to ask for flexible working hours. If it is not detrimental to your availability for meetings, etc., why would your employer not want you working during the eight hours when you are at your peak? I don't know about you, but I would definitely like to change my working hours to get more sleep. Malcolm Von Schantz there with Katie Haler. Now, something that gave me sleepless nights in July was one of the more off-the-wall experiments we've ever done. You know how they say, in space, no one can hear you scream? Well, we wanted to find out. We collaborated with engineers at Brunel University, and we created this device that has a loudspeaker and a microphone attached to each other by springs. And the springs make it so that sound from the speaker can't travel through any part of the solid into the microphone. They can only go through the air. Now, we attached that kit to a special balloon and sent it up to 120,000 feet in the air, right to the edge of space, and we played screams out of the speaker such that the microphone could hear it. Now, if the air gets thinner, as you go higher in the atmosphere, then those screams should get quieter and quieter. Also, the conditions are pretty extreme up that high, so the kit needed not to fall apart and actually record the screams properly. This was all a pretty tall order, to say the least. Here's Chris Smith first, and then you'll hear from Brunel's Omar Gad. We bought a cheap speaker off the internet, and then we went and bought a microphone that cost about £8, and pretty quickly realised that an £8 microphone was not going to cut it because it was rubbish. So we went and bought an £80 microphone, and that was much better. And so I recorded myself screaming... That was recorded with the mic, and now we're going to play what the mic recorded. 
So it's playing the audio of the screams and it's also recording the audio and we're also recording other things like temperature, pressure. There is also a satellite transponder on it because we've got to go and retrieve it. The weather for this is critical. When something's going on a four-hour flight, all the time it's up in the air, it's subject to wind. But it's pretty windy up there regardless. So it's definitely going to travel across the country. So we may have to do a bit of driving to catch up with this thing. If the wind suddenly changes direction and turns west, then the whole lot's going to go in the ocean and we're going to lose everything. Just got in the car. We have to go to the west country to launch the balloon because the prevailing wind direction is towards the east. So this balloon should come down somewhere over Birmingham-ish. I'm optimistic. Buoyant. Yes, yeah, so now we finally arrived in this field. We've got a very large cylinder of helium, which is what we're going to put into the balloon. Two, one, go. I'm Dr. Konstantinos Banitsa for Brunel University. This is a project that has a thousand things that can go wrong, and only in one scenario you can actually retrieve it. Everything has to work right. We've got the device we've built, which is in a big polystyrene box, which the balloon is going to carry up to 120,000 feet. You have to be absolutely sure that everything is secure because we can't tell how crazy the weather might get up there. Uh, stop, 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 stop. Yeah, we're ready. We're ready to launch now. Okay, 10, 9, 8, 7, 5, 8. That's perfect! 1,047 uh, meters after probably about five minutes. I'm now going to run the prediction now that we've launched it to see uh, exactly where it's going to end up. Okay, so it's going to land in a place <laughs> called New Cross near Wolverhampton. One team should now get going and we will probably clear up and chase after it. Okay. Well, I'm Tim Pilgrim at Freenow University. So we've now reached the outskirts of Birmingham and we've just received some exciting news that the balloon has started to come back down again. So we've obviously reached peak. Fingers crossed we should be at the landing site before the balloon gets there. Oh, it's already landed? It's in a field right next to a river. Oh, fantastic. You guys are probably going to be the first ones there. Cheers. Bye. Well, that's exciting. <laughs> Where is it? We found it exactly where we were supposed to find it. And it's here. <laughs> here it is, the payload. In the middle of a field. We, lo we actually lost telemetry. Uh, had it not been for the Find My Phone app, this, this is how we actually found the, the we lost device. Well, we did it. What did we find? Well, if we look at two screams, here's the first one. This one was recorded at the ground. Children, come and clean your room! And you compare that with this, which was recorded at 33 kilometres up, just before the balloon popped, where the pressure is 10 millibar, so only about one one-hundredth of the pressure at the Earth's surface. You can hear that the two are dramatically different. The second, where the air is very thin, is really quiet. So... The logical conclusion is, were we to have carried on going up even further, the air would have continued to get even thinner, we would eventually have reached a point where there would be so few air molecules bashing into the microphone, it would barely move and you wouldn't be able to hear it. Case closed. But 
we have made a special page on our website with all of the raw data and the recordings as well as other measurements we made and you can go and take a look at that. Interestingly, we've got the profile of the carbon dioxide levels as we go up and we think on our graph you can see the effects of the M4 motorway and the city of Bristol just upwind of where we were taking off. If you want to go and have a look at it, it's nakedscientist.com forward slash balloon. Didn't they also put a camera on the balloon, Phil? Because the images must have been incredible and I've seen a couple of them. Yeah, what they did is they actually took a couple of mobile phones and they taped them to the inside of the the box that was effectively the payload underneath the balloon. And they cut little holes in the box where the phone's cameras were. So the phones were pointing their cameras out in both directions and they were actually filming. And the videos are just breathtaking. They're so beautiful seeing the Earth from space. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for your audio and video productions. And for the next half an hour, we're treating you to more of our best bits from a year of Naked Science shows. Now, summer 2019 marked a spectacular science anniversary, 50 years since the Apollo 11 mission. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes. And 50 years to the day that the Saturn V rocket, which took Buzz Aldrin, Neil Armstrong, and Michael Collins on their incredible journey, was launched, Izzy Clark met up with engineer, mathematician, and rocket expert Hugh Hunt at Cambridge University's engineering department to find out how rockets work. The fuel was basically kerosene, more or less the same, a bit like petrol, a bit like diesel fuel, nothing particularly special, but with liquid oxygen. And to this day, the rockets SpaceX are using are exactly that. They have kerosene and liquid oxygen. Turns out to be a really efficient fuel. Four million litres of this fuel, boy, it's an explosion waiting to happen. That takes the rocket up to the upper edges of the atmosphere, at which point that stage falls off and falls to ground. There's a couple more stages left, which are hydrogen and oxygen fueled stages. It's important to have different stages because you don't want to carry the weight of your fuel tank all the way to the moon. And they did this 50 years ago. These engineers were just fantastic. And why is oxygen so important in this launch? If you burn a fuel on air, air is 80% nitrogen. It's just added weight. If you really want to get fast, energetic combustion, you need to have pure oxygen. And so what's going on in our rocket to make sure, you know, we get to whatever our destination might be? Well, so the rocket is employing Newton's third law, which is that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. It's a bit like when a rifle is fired. The bullet rockets out of one end and the gun kicks back into your shoulder, just using the expanding gases caused by an explosion, just not quite on the scale of a rocket. Now, a rocket is throwing out the exhaust from burning the kerosene and the oxygen at a really high speed. The faster you propel this stuff out, the more thrust you'll get. Lots of fuel going at high speed propels you up. Because I think a common misconception is that when a rocket goes up, it's pushing against the ground. A rocket, when it goes up, doesn't push against the ground. 
even in outer space, you get thrust. When they were orbiting around the moon, they were able to eject thrust with little rockets to accelerate the lander and all sorts of things to manoeuvre the spacecraft. Enough theory. Time to launch some rockets. But we needed a crew for this. And thankfully... We had some help from St Paul's Primary School in Cambridge. So, what's the mission plan? We set up our own little launch pad in the courtyard. We placed our long, thin, pointed tube rocket, made from cardboard, on the pad, sitting it on top of a thin cylinder of some compressed air, just waiting to be shot skyward. A trusty bike pump would compress the air down and hold it in a chamber. All that was left to do was push an exciting-looking red button to unleash the air and launch the rockets. That was twice the height of the building. (laughs) Thanks, Hugh, and thanks to the kids at St Paul's Primary School in Cambridge. Well, we have an even younger star in our next audio snippet. Little Bruce was just 15 weeks old back in September when the next clip was recorded. Bruce is a Labrador puppy, and we took him to Cambridge-based gene sequencing company Illumina to lift the lid on his doggy DNA. Hello, this is Ursula Arndt. I'm a scientist at Illumina, and what's your name? I'm Amelia and I own Bruce, the young puppy we've got here. We're going to take DNA from the inside of its mouth and what we have is a swap so we're going to see if we can get him to keep it in his mouth and we're going to rub it around his cheek for a couple of minutes. What are you picking up from inside of the mouth with that swab? Mostly saliva but what we should be getting is a lot of dog cells as well. And what we're hoping for, actually, that we're not just getting dog, but we might be getting some of the bacteria that might be in his mouth as well. And what will you do with those? Sequence them on one of our sequences, and then we can tell you a lot more about Bruce. 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 <gasps> nom, nom, nom. So right now I'm like trying to swap the inside of his cheek, not just his teeth, without him eating the entire tube. And right now he's really trying to chew on my hand as well. Okay, I think we're good, Bruce. So I've now turned the swap around and so the piece that looks like a Q-tip is now inside of the liquid. And that's going to take the DNA from the swap and hopefully preserve it. Um, what happens next? So tomorrow morning we're going to take this liquid that contains the cells. We're going to break up the cell and we're going to keep the DNA and throw away everything that's protein or that cell parts, cell walls and everything that's not DNA. We're going to sequence all of his genome and then we're going to, actually our biostaticians are going to look at how much wolf is in the dog. I think that's one of our main questions. Then we see what else we can find. Okay, so I'm trying to get the dog to not wiggle because I don't want to cut him while he's moving. But I'm going to take some hair just from the back of his neck. Can you, can you hold on to your dog for a minute? <laughs> yeah, there should be plenty of hair here. <laughs> that should be more than enough dog in this tube. Thank you so much, Bruce. Bruce? Bruce? Biscuit? Right, Phil, how much of a wolf is Bruce the puppy then? Quite a lot. 
Compared to other dogs, it turns out he's about in the middle of the scale of how much like a wolf you are, where huskies are at the most like a wolf end, and something like a chihuahua is obviously at the least like a wolf end. So he's slap bang in the middle. Technology is incredible, isn't it? And we've discussed so many cutting-edge breakthroughs and cool pieces of kit this year. But so much of modern-day technology assumes that you can, for instance, see well enough to read a screen or hear well enough to catch a command or be able to move to click a mouse. In October, we set out to take stock of how accessible some of the tech we use every day is for everyone. Adi Latif from the charity AbilityNet laid some of the ground for us on tech and accessibility and he spoke with Chris. Also, Adi is blind and in order to join us at the studio in Cambridge, he set out to book his train ticket online. Via a voiceover setting on his phone, Adi had information read aloud to him quite fast in order to access what was going on on a particular web page. Open the train line. Train line. Help. From departure station. Text field. K I. London King's Cross going to Cambridge. Yes, there we go. Sunday, thirteenth. Fantastic. So up to this point, this has been quite event-free. Let's see what happens next. So live times and tickets. Oh, it's doing something. Mobile tickets are now available to Cambridge North. No more queues or fumbling for tickets. No more queues or fumbling for tickets. Oh, how does it know I'm always fumbling for tickets? Okay, got it. Okay, Button. got it. How to get your ticket? Heading. How to get your Facility. ticket? Collect from station. Collect from station. Collect from station. Collect from station. Collect from No. Ticket collection info. Button. Collect from station. Collect from station. Collect I from thought it said no fumbling for tickets and now it's telling me that's the only option. Total amount to pay 12.20 British pounds. Well, you made it. Was that a good interaction? Was that a good day? It was a typical example of something kind of working and um, and then me getting stuck. So I got so far and I wasn't able to get a mobile ticket. And then when I got to the end, it wouldn't actually allow me to book. Um, I put in two different cards and it just wasn't working for me. I find it hard enough, Addy, to buy stuff online and I can see all these buttons and boxes I'm supposed to tick and click. Does it mm. not make you exquisitely nervous when you're thinking I'm parting with credit card details onto a web page that I can't see and I don't really know what it's doing with any of the data? It, weirdly enough, if I get that far, if I'm actually able to give them my money, I'm the happiest person in the world. Because <laughs> <laughs> over 90% of apps or websites don't work for me. So I'll get so far, I'll, I'll, I'll have filled in a form to book a flight or you know, to buy something and I get to the end and the button doesn't work for me. So if I'm able to give someone my money, then I'm really happy to do so. I find it really surprising and quite frankly shocking. We invent computers, we invent computer programs, and ostensibly this is all about making life better for us. And we've never had it so easy in terms of being able to make something and mould it and turn it into something that we need. And yet we seem hell-bent on actually making computers the masters. And when it comes to people who actually have disability, we make them even harder. And I think the digital world, and this is the this is the most exciting thing, the digital world inherently is barrier free. And it's just unfortunate if we don't look at a methodology such as inclusive design, if we don't think before we make something that, you know, will this meet the needs? Is this fit for purpose for society? Then we unfortunately create these barriers that are just unnecessary. 
What success stories have you come across, though? In what way have you seen your life change as a blind person, thanks to the digital revolution that we've had in the last couple of decades? Well, there's so many things that a blind person couldn't do 20 years ago. You know, I couldn't read the papers. I wouldn't be able to flag a taxi off the street in a train station. I wouldn't be able to find out what platform my train is leaving from. So there's just some examples. And so I can have access to all that information now. So In a way, technology has given me what medical breakthroughs couldn't. You know, it's given me independence. It's given me access to information. That's why it's really exciting. If it didn't quite work out then, Addy, how did you get here then? Because you fell down at the last hurdle. It wouldn't take your money. Absolutely. So it didn't take my money. So I decided I would just go to the station the old fashioned way and have someone help me use a machine. And as you can see, the difference there, there's so much relying on other people just because the digital was not working for me. Adi Latif from AbilityNet. And you can hear all about what inclusive design, as Adi mentioned, is and how more tech organisations are designing more inclusively and what still needs to change by listening to our inclusive computing show in full, which you can find at nakedscientists.com. Now, never let it be said that we don't tackle the big science questions on this show. I think custard is the only acceptable thing that you can add to desserts no ice cream no cream only custard no ice cream if there was an option always go with custard i i can't go with this purist philosophy custard is great but ice cream (laughs) is also great let's be clear about this right there are other things that are tasty ice cream is great but when it comes to dessert custard is the only acceptable addition do you prefer it hot or cold there we go We've had this argument in the office so many times and Adam is consistently wrong. You have custard hot. Hot dessert, cold custard. That's the correct way around. On a dessert, on a hot dessert, you have hot custard. I don't care if it's July. The point is to have a cold thing with a hot dessert, right? Exactly, exactly. Cold thing on a hot dessert. That's why you have it. I don't want balance, I just want custard. (laughs) Yeah, that really was Adam and Katie arguing over custard. With Adam being right. Guys, let's get through this. For me, custard is a comforting treat on a cold winter's day, bringing back memories of family occasions and getting cosy indoors after trudging through the wind, rain and snow. But as I learned from head chef Tristan Welch at Cambridge's Parker's Tavern in November, it can be so much more. Let's start by making a really classical custard, or the French might call it creme anglaise. All we need really is egg yolks, milk and cream and sugar with uh, an infusion of vanilla. At a fundamental level, is this what custard really is? This is the complete definition of custard. This is what every other custard has been based upon. Eggs, milk, cream, sugar. With a bit of vanilla. Custard is one of the foundations of the modern world's desserts and anything else to do with a kitchen. A quiche, for instance. No. Of course a quiche is a custard. I don't believe you. Yeah, yeah, a quiche, a flan, and ice cream's another custard, actually. Ice cream's a custard? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, what we're doing here is a classical custard base. But if you take this custard and you put it in an ice cream machine, you've got vanilla ice cream. Is it still custard, though? Of course. I'm finding out that a lot of things are custard that I didn't realise were custard. (laughs) Everything's custard. It all comes down to custard. Let's make a start on this, because you've got your pan here on this induction stove, this mini, almost hot plate. Ticking away with our milk, cream and vanilla and creating an infusion. Now, in, in this bowl here, I'm mixing sugar and egg yolks 
and that's going to give our milk and cream a consistency because when the egg yolks cook the proteins coagulate a bit it creates a viscosity so a thickness to the milk and cream and that is really what we know as custard so our milk and cream has been infusing with our vanilla for about 20 minutes a gentle simmer the aroma is just fantastic it's like childhood memories coming back it's like a sweet shop now i've got our eggs and our sugar i'm gently going to pour on the milk and cream and this is called tempering the eggs and this is really important if you pour the eggs into the milk and cream it will scramble them so you pour about half of the milk and cream onto the eggs and i can put that into the pan safely without it splitting basically if you cook the eggs too far it looks a little bit like scrambled eggs floating in water and if i understand right custard is all about cooking it to the point before it splits and you get the scrambled egg horribleness absolutely the magic temperature here to get it to is about 82 degrees centigrade oh look you can see now it's already thicker yeah absolutely (laughs) you just had a spoonful it's delicious. I can't help myself. Never trust a chef who doesn't eat his own food, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's gorgeous. Well, as a treat, I actually have a little surprise for you. So I'm just going to unzip this bag. Ta-da! Custards! <laughs> Celebratory custard. I'm going to make Adam eat it hot. I'm not. I'm not. I wouldn't do that to you. But as it's the festive season, we are also going to have some mince pies. Woohoo! Nice. This is the best. We have come back from the kitchen. Phil's brought nachos for some reason. And also mince pie and custard. Adam's having cold mince pie, cold custard. And me and Phil are both having cold mince pie, hot custard. And I know what you're going to say, Adam. Yes, the mince pies are cold. I know I said hot dessert, hot custard, blah, blah, blah. It's the season of goodwill, isn't it? So I thought perhaps it's the season of compromise when it comes to custard. Not sure science is about compromise, Katie, but I'll (laughs) let Adam weigh in on this. This is how I win the argument. (laughs) You can finish that custard while you're telling us about the next section. All right, I will. And if that wasn't enough festive indulgence for you, Phil, you've also been looking into the science of a potential hangover cure published by scientists in Mumbai. And he convinced Cambridge University chemist and very good sport Alex Tom to actually try it. But did it work? Let's find out. So they found that various fruits and vegetables actually change the way alcohol is degraded in the body. Are we talking about treating a hangover? Basically, yes. I mean, it's the, the products when you drink alcohol and it ceases to be alcohol and it turns into some nasty things and then eventually turns into fat. Okay, explain how they investigated this. Okay, so they, they didn't actually use any live subjects. They got some, some of the enzymes that are used in uh, alcohol degradation called uh, dehydrogenases, one that turns alcohol into acetaldehyde, and that works fairly slowly, and a second one that takes acetaldehyde and takes it to acetate. And it's the rate of the two fighting against each other which keeps a steady state of this acetaldehyde which gives you the hangover. If you make acetaldehyde faster than you get rid of it, you get a build-up. And so they did separate tests on these two enzymes with all manner of different fruit juices and vegetable juices. What fruit juices and vegetable juices? So they went down to the local market in Mumbai and picked up basically everything they could find from pineapple, papaya, carrots, coffee, spices, 
coconut milk and coconut water. Sounds like a horrible hangover concoction if you mix it all together. They did them separately, but then they tried to work out what would be the best combination. And they had a panel who decided whether or not this concoction they were going to make was pleasant. The panel universally said that anything involving vegetables wasn't a very nice drink. That makes a lot of sense to me. How good is this science? Is this actually testing whether these things are a good hangover cure? Probably not. Because they're doing this in vitro, in glassware, rather than in the liver, all manner of other things are probably going on in the body. So uh, take this with a pinch of salt as to actually whether it does the same thing in the body as in the test tube. What was the weirdest thing that they tried, in your opinion? So they tried cheese as a hangover cure. (laughs) Cheese? Cheese, yes. And it actually appears to be a, a hangover cure. What's an interesting one I found was that coffee, which they tried, uh, actually has the opposite effect on hangovers, that it causes your hangover to get longer. That's mind-blowing. I always drink coffee when I'm feeling any sort of headache. Same here. So I've I've deliberately avoided a coffee this morning. Have you got a hangover this morning for the sake of science, can I ask? I'll say I had a relatively late night at a friend's birthday, so... uh, I I wouldn't say I'm entirely fresh this morning. Right. Well, this is the ultimate test because you're in the perfect state. Now, did the scientists find what they think is the perfect hangover cure? They found their best combination that would get rid of the acetaldehyde quickly. And it was a combination of pear, sweet lime and coconut water. So we've got three different liquids here. So there's some pear juice, freshly squeezed, some lime juice, freshly squeezed, and a little bottle of coconut water. And we're going to mix them together. I have a little cocktail shaker here, just uh, for science. And let's... So it involved a bit more pear juice. A third of the same quantity of lime juice. It doesn't look too appetising yet. Yes, it's got a slightly murky brown colour. And... The same amount of coconut water. Well, it's still murky brown. All right, bottoms up. Bottoms up. Ooh. Uh, Actually, it's quite nice. The lime really gives it a zing, and it's certainly waking me up at the moment. Actually, (laughs) I I could just drink this for breakfast, actually. I have to say, it tasted better than it looked. If it was sold as a juice, I would probably buy it. In fact, Katie, actually, now that you've made mince pies and custard for us, maybe I should return the favour to you two and make the drink for you after New Year's Eve. I'm looking forward to trying it. Now, we hope you've enjoyed joining us on our journey through Naked Science of 2019. Before we go, we can't resist sharing just one more clip. If you went to a festival this summer, you may still be proudly wearing the fabric wristband you received on entry, but... Festivals can be dirty places and we wanted to investigate what bacteria might be coming home with you after the music stops. So Izzy Clark and Phil sent over Izzy's wristband from Glastonbury 2019 to microbiologist Nikki Milner from Anglia Ruskin University. If you're eating mince pies and custard right now, or anything else for that matter, you might just want to put the cutlery down for a minute. What we need to do is to transfer all of the bacteria onto agar plates, which we use three different types. We use blood agar, cled agar, which has sugar. And we also have a new modern technique. So the bacteria essentially grow as different colours. We put them into an incubator at 37 degrees overnight. And the next day we looked to see the different types of bacteria. We're both very nervous to hear. What did you find? I expected to see more skin bacteria. But what I this morning, um, fortunately, Izzy, was a lot of bacteria that some of it came from the environment, maybe sitting on the grass and transferring bacteria from the soil. But also what we saw was fecal bacteria. Oh my God! 
<laughs> I was so worried this was going to happen. Faecal bacteria is actually found everywhere. And some of those bacteria might be good and some might be bad. And some of those may cause us sickness. But the point is that they transfer from person to person. Just how much faecal matter was on there? Quite a lot, actually. Oh, the, predominant <laughs> <laughs> the predominant bacteria was, it was actually a hemolytic bacteria. So this is where the blood agar plate came in useful. That bacteria has a toxin which bursts the red blood cells. So when we hold the agar plate up to the light, we can see through it. And that pile of bacterial cells looks like a faecal streptococcus, enterococcus, which is found in everybody's feces we need it there it's good and clearly it's been transferred onto your wristband that's really great what was interesting was the predominant bacteria found in human feces is actually escherichia coli we didn't see any of that so there is probably a local contamination and you might have rolled your wrist on something maybe touched a surface in the um portaloo what does this mean for someone who has come back from a festival and has still got their wristband on their wrist? It's a common trend now to sort of keep hold of your wristband. And the texture was quite rough, so those bacteria would actually stay in those grooves. If you can wash a wristband, then I would suggest doing that or taking them off and putting them in a bag or something so you can keep that memory, but possibly not on your skin. <laughs> <laughs> Izzy, what do you think of all this? I really tried to wash every day, but that's just really quite disgusting mm. and disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> then that's the point, that we cannot stay away from bacteria. They are there. They're our friends and they're our enemies. And good hygiene and awareness is the best message that people can give. So perhaps it's time to ditch that wristband. That's it for this week and for this year. It's been lovely listening back to a year of Naked Science. And a massive thank you to Georgia Mills and Izzy Clark, who we've said goodbye to this year. And a big thank you to Phil Sansom, who's joined us this year. Join us next week for a Q&A, where we'll be putting your questions to a panel of science superstars. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. From me, Phil Sansom. From me, Adam Murphy. And from me, Katie Haler. Happy New Year! Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.